Amen and amen and amen, right? Amen. Hey, one of the things that I am realizing here is that we have some real men here at the Church of 1122. And whenever we are called to stand up and salute our flag and give honor, we do because of the men and women that stood up and can't stand up anymore for us. Amen and amen and amen. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, um, uh, get, grab your notes. Everybody needs to grab their notes. They need to uh, go to the cover of it right there at the bottom. You need to scratch out October 6 and 9 and put 13 and 16. I decided we're not reprinting them. You can just write that, okay? Just write the correct date. But I bring that up because I just want to tell you how proud I am of you, church. So we didn't not have church last weekend. We just went and did church all over the community. And so way to go, cleaning up yards and helping out people. And, um, you know, the news picked it up and ran stories about you, about our church just serving. And some people met Jesus because we just showed up to clean up yards and stuff. So way to go. And then particularly, I would like to say thank you to the first responders of our great city. If you are a first responder here, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And let me put this, let me put your job in a theological context real quick, okay? You are literally an answer to prayer sometimes. Some man, some woman in great need cries out, dear God, help me. And then you, in a uniform and with flashy lights, show up as a literal answer to their prayer. God hears them and sends you. And so, listen, we love our city. We have such a great city, and a big reason we do is because of people like you. So way to go. Thank you, thank you, first responders. <clears throat> now, we're in our third week of, uh, of this series called Act Like Men, and we've been, our, our theme verse is 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I'll read that to you, but where, where I need you to go is Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. If you got your Bibles, I hope you do, grab them, go to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm giving some of you enough time to find Ephesians, okay? So, good luck. <clears throat> but here's what 1 Corinthians 16, 13 and 14 says. It says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. That's what we're going to talk about this time. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And the idea behind this series is that what if that the, the, the hub and the center of the will is this, act like men, and the imperatives around it are how we are to act like men. And so we've got to e reject the two extremes, this kind of super chauvinistic macho man that thinks that, that, that your manhood is tied up in the size of the tires on your truck, uh, whatever. But we've also got to reject this other thing that the world teaches. That no, there, there are no difference between men and women. We're just all the same. That's a lie from the pit of hell too. And so what we look to is we look to the word of God. We look to the creator of males and females to figure out what a man is. And what biblical manhood is, is there's a definition right here in, this, in these verses. The way to act like a man is to be watchful. That's what we talked about the first week. So now, or the second week, today we'll talk about stand firm in the faith. A.W. Tozer says this, the most important thing about you is what you think when you think about God. I'd like to change that just a little bit and ask you this, when you think about Jesus and who Jesus is, what comes to your mind? 
because that might shape you more than anything else. And maybe a part of the reason that there's a whole bunch of men, even church men, not acting like men is because you don't have an actual picture of who the real Jesus is. See, you've got this idea of this kind of effeminate little Swedish blonde headed guy that's never been in the sun, long blonde hair, no split ends, Miss America sash, your mom's bathrobe on, just petting a sheep and singing kumbaya with little kids. And you're thinking, if that's what it is to be a Christian, I don't think I'm gonna be one of those. I don't blame you, me either. That is not at all who the second person of the Trinity, God eternal, God the Son is at all. In fact, the Bible says this in Exodus 15, three, the Bible says the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Man, I went to this terrible liberal seminary where everybody was a wuss and, you know, they all were. Oh, I told them too. I told them, you're a wuss. <laughs> they almost didn't let me graduate. Then they realized I'd have to stay longer and they were like, go ahead. Okay, so it worked out. And I literally had professors say, we should remove all of the war language from the Bible. Okay, I don't think God asked your opinion to edit his word, because there's a whole lot of that kind of language. And you know why there's a whole lot of war language in the Bible? Because we were born into a war. And the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Now that's not all he is, but he is that. And then we, male and female, are created in his image. So men, we must reject this idea that this world gives us that we are not supposed to be men. You see, because if the Lord is a warrior and the Lord is his name and you were created in his image, that means that you were a warrior if you follow him in the name of Jesus. And God sets it up for this man to have a will to obey and work to enjoy and a woman to love and everything goes amazing for less than a page in the Bible. <laughs> and then the enemy comes along and the enemy takes a good gift from God and then he twists it or he perverts it and every single one of us, every single one of us are born behind enemy lines. And the God calls us to be warriors, men. You see, men, we are given strength not for our own benefit. We are given strength to fight, but not just for the sake of fighting. We are given strength not to fight for us, but fight on the behalf of those that God has put under our authority and under our responsibility. I mean, just look around in our current world and look at what the enemy is trying to take from us. You see, the enemy's vision statement is in our scriptures, John 10, 10. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And if you don't believe that there is an enemy trying to steal your hopes and dreams, trying to destroy your family and kill everything that, good, that is good and right and decent, honestly, you're too dumb to talk to. I mean, you think the conditions in this world are just a, a poor decisions? You think genocide in Rwanda is because somebody just made a poor decision? Mm -mm. It is because there is evil incarnate and he is our enemy. So then the question is, so if men, if we don't stand up and fight, who will? If we don't stand up and fight, who will? And so, as I've been building this sermon series, it's kind of been building on, on uh, each week. And so the first week was about act like men. What went wrong? And we talked about that, that God sent Jesus, the perfect God-man, and he is, he is our, our savior and our model of what a man is. 
Last week, we, we huddled around what it means to be watchful, to watch out, to wake up, and that, that this world, our families, our churches, our country, they want us on that wall and they need us on that wall. And we talked about the kind of schemes that the enemy comes after the defenders. Because if he can take out the defenders, by definition, there leave some people that are defenseless. And so what we're gonna talk about today is this. So once you, once you are watching out and paying attention, what does it look like to stand firm in the faith? To stand firm, some translations, we study with the ESV, but some translations translate that like don't give ground. To stand up, to take a stand. When the enemy attacks you, that you don't give up ground. So how do we do that? You see, the reality is this, men, you have been given authority. Maybe a, maybe a phrase that you've heard in your world sometimes is that the husband is the spiritual leader of the home. That is partially true. He's just the leader of the home. Spiritual is a part of being the leader. And so how do you do that? What does it look like to stand firm, to fight for the faith of the people that God has put around you? You see, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says this, verse 21. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. You know what that means, men? That you, that you are the gatekeeper of your home. And a part of what you do is you stand at the door of your house, whatever that means. Even if you're a married guy with a bunch of kids, if you're a single guy, it also means to stand at the gate, the, the doors of our city, of our country, of our homes, of our apartments, whatever it is. And if we guard our own palace and his goods are safe, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusts and divides his spoil. That word divides literally in Greek means has his way with his spoils. That doesn't just mean he divides up his stuff. That means the enemy has his way with his wife and has his way with his kids. And I'm gonna tell you what, in our culture and in our country right now and all over Jacksonville, the enemy is having his way with a whole lot of people that God put in our, under our protection. And it's because men have not stood up and fought. You see, there's a whole bunch of women and children and I mean grown children now. And the reason we've got the pain that we have in our life is because the man that God put to defend our home did not do his job. Either he got obsessed with some stupid hobby that he thought de determined his manhood or he was just a wuss. And the Bible says this. You know what the Bible says about what I translate wuss? I don't know what the Greek word for that is. but <laughs> The Bible says, and I mention this all the time, that the man that will not care for his family is worse than the unbeliever. I mean, just let that, you know, the unbeliever goes to hell and then there's an escalator going down and then that's where that guy goes. This is, this is a really, really big deal. So then the question is, so how do I do that? Because I think if, you've, if you showed up for three weeks to just take this beat down, I, I think you're ready. I think you're saying by your attendance, okay, all right, I'm in. I wanna do the job that God has given me to do, so what do I do? So now, that's why we're gonna to go to Ephesians chapter six. Ephesians chapter six is kind of the preeminent text on what it means to fight against this enemy that wants to kill you and steal from you and destroy you. And so if you pick it up in verse 10, it starts out this way. It says, finally. 
Now, again, I apologize, but this is why it takes me so long to teach the Bible. I can't, like, every word, I have to stop. So if, it says finally, so you got to see what was before the finally to see what he's talking about. So if you, if you back up into chapter 5, verse 21, you'll see this verse that says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then the next three sections that Paul is instructing to the church at Ephesus, it's how to be married, how, how husbands and wives should treat each other. It's how to parent, how parents and children are supposed to get along. And then it's bond servants and masters. In our context, it would be, how do you go to work? So in the context of home and work, in the context of all of the most important relationships in our lives. That's where this armor of God passage is written. So in the context, men, of the reality that God has called you to stand at the gate of your own household, whatever the responsibility God has given you, he says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I got good news for you, fellas. This is not about your own strength. That should give you great relief. Some of you little wimpy guys, a lot of relief, okay? <laughs> and next week, all we're gonna do, all next week, we're just gonna unpack what does it mean to be strong? What does it look like to be strong in the Lord? So come back next week for that part. But he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then here it is, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So here we get a very similar command that we get in 1 Corinthians 16 where he says, stand firm in the faith. But in Ephesians chapter six, he's gonna, he's gonna tease out how you stand firm. See, let me just give you a little, uh, a, a little tip when you do Bible study like on your own. Always allow the Bible to be commentary unto itself. Like before you want to hear what I have to say about it. First, see what the Bible itself says about the Bible, because ultimately it all has the same author. And so he's going to give us some how to's. How do you stand against the schemes of the devil? Again, when you hear that word stand, it doesn't just mean like stand up out of your chair. It means like take a stand. Like when the enemy punches you that you don't give up ground, that you watch out and that you fight back because it says here that, that the devil has schemes or plans. The Greek word for schemes is the root word where we get our word method. Like in other words, the enemy's been watching game film on you. He knows where you are weak. He knows where your weaknesses are and where your temptations are. I mean, a great question to ask yourself in your own fight against the enemy is this, if I were the devil, how would I fight against me? That's probably the area that you need to fight hardest in. I know it is for me. And so how do you stand against the schemes? And again, man, they're schemes. The enemy very rarely has like a full frontal attack because usually we can see it coming. We run into the arms of our heavenly father and he just kind of kicks tail. It's usually a trick. That's why it's called temptation. I've told you this, every time I tell you this, I never see you write it down. But the reality is this, is that temptation is tempting. Is it not? Sometimes the Bible will call it the lure of temptation. Just like, again, I'm a bass fisherman and you use a lure because you're trying to trick the bass into killing him. Or at least give him a little lip ring for a while and throwing him back, taking a picture, all right? And so what are those things in your life? Because, because you will, you will get attacked. He is coming after you. And again, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. And if he's not coming after you, you legitimately have to ask yourself, whose team am I on? 
if you do not feel an incredible force of a current of culture against you, then it could be because you're just going with it. And so he says this in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. See, these are fighting terms, okay? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly places. I don't have time to unpack it all. Just, this is just true. That the problems in your life are not the people in your life. You see, your problem is not your boss. Your problem is not your kids. Your problem are not the politicians. I know that was kind of hard to swallow right now, all right, but it's just true. <laughs> like your problem is not your wife. That your battle is not against flesh and blood, but there is a spiritual force against it. Now let me warn you of something, fellas. Don't later on this week when your wife's getting on your nerves and you hear that drip, drip, drip going on, don't be like, there you go again, baby. Pastor Joby said, you're possessed by the devil. I'm telling you, don't do it. She's like, no, it's PMS. You're like, I think that stands for pretty much Satan. I think that's what that means. Okay, don't do it. Because I think there are times in my life where I feel like my kids are tools in the hand of the enemy, right? Sometimes I feel like they're just Satan himself and then sometimes tools of the enemy. Now, here's the two extremes. Both of these are dangerous. If you think there's no enemy, no devil at all, He's got you hooked. And if you think every single thing is a spiritual problem, okay, sometimes you just have a bad hair day and there's humidity. You're not being attacked by the devil, all right? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, this one's happens a lot. People come to me for prayer at the end of a service. Pastor, the enemy's just attacking me and they tell me what the attacks are and I go, I think he's leaving you alone because your self-inflicted wounds are doing just fine, okay? So sometimes you're dumb and they're self-inflicted. And so it's somewhere in between that we've gotta be aware of this, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Your problem are, is not the person that you're looking at. The problem is you have an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And the moment that you can stop fighting with your wife and fighting with your kids and fighting with your neighbor, and you can start fighting with the enemy, then you can actually begin fighting for your wife and fighting for your kids and fighting for your neighbors in your neighborhood. You just gotta fight the right enemy. So which you might go, okay, so the first step in a fight, you gotta identify the enemy. And so um, it's why the book Song of Solomon says this, says catch for us the little foxes in our garden that are eating at the tulips. What this means is, is me and you get in a fight, it's not me versus you, it's me and you versus an enemy, a fox who, who has schemed his way into our garden and he is trying to ruin us. That's true in every single relationship. So how do, how do you stand against the enemy? Because I know, fellas, a lot of you feel like, well, because I, I don't feel like the spiritual leader of my house and I can fight against the enemy. I mean, I barely come to church sometimes and it's mostly because my wife makes me come or, I, you know, it's been fun for a little while. I, I still haven't found Ephesians yet, okay? Can, how do I do this? That's <laughs> why we print it in here, by the way, okay? Every time. Here's how, he's just gonna give you kind of play by play, man, because I know that's what most men want, okay? They don't want this theological construct and concept. They just like, give, can you just give me, a, give me a playbook, man? What can I do? So for the, for the next 29 minutes and 34 seconds, I'm just gonna give you 
a way, this is not the way, this is not all that this passage means, but a way you can take the whole armor of God and apply it to what does it look like to be a man today, to be a husband today, and be a dad today. And I need to also tell you this, I am a 43-year-old man, I've been married for almost 17 years, I got two kids, it is the world I live in, okay? So that is the, that is the, 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 the glasses that I see all of this through. So if you're single, if you're a grandparent, you're so smart, okay? You're 1122, smartest people I've ever met. So you can make the transferable principles. So here's how you stand against the enemy. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. In other words, Paul's like, you got this, bro. Okay, you've got this. Stand therefore, here we go is what he's saying. He starts with this. The first one is this, having fastened on the belt of truth. If you're not familiar with this passage, if you're new to Bible study, Paul is writing this from prison. He's probably chained to a Roman soldier and he's looking at the, at the armor that a soldier has on and he's gonna use it as a metaphor as to how we should dress ourselves for battle. And he starts with this, having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. And man, we are in a truth battle these days. In fact, even the idea of truth is that there is no such thing as truth, which is a truth claim in and of itself. Do you understand that? The person that tells you there are absolutely no absolutes is an absolute statement, which means they're dumb. That's what that means. But we fight for truth. And as Christians, we believe that some things are right and some things are wrong not based on our preferences, but based on the precepts of God. Not because I think they're right or wrong. I mean, it does not matter what I think. I hope you know that. What matters is what God thinks. That matters most. Regardless of what, regardless of what the Supreme Court decides, you know what, it, that's a terrible name for a court because they're not supreme. They're not. They don't get to define things that God defines. But we as Christians don't believe that all opinions are equal. We, see, we think some opinions are better than others and God's is the best of all. And so, so we stand up for the truth according to the word of God. And this is so stinking important, especially these days. Is that the reason that God's word has authority is not simply because what it says is true, but it's also trustworthy. It's not just that Jesus is who he says he is and he always keeps his promise, but if you, were to, if you were to lay your life on the promises of Jesus, he will never, ever, ever let you down. The scriptures aren't just um, factual statements, but they're also trustworthy. If he is the creator of all life, I bet this, he knows how to live it better than we do. Don't believe me? Find any person probably sitting on your row or maybe you shaved with them this morning that tried to do money your way instead of God's way for a while. How'd that work out? Not too good. They tried to do marriage your way instead of God's way. They tried to do sex your way instead of God's way. I'm just telling you, the author of life knows how to do life. And the reality is this, that we men have to fight for truth. The question is this, does your family know truth? And what are you doing about that? 
Because almost all news, almost every TV show you watch, almost every magazine you read, and almost everything your kid sees through a screen on an iPad is lying to them. It's just true. See, you're not a cosmic accident. You're not. That's what they're teaching my son in school. You're a cosmic accident. And so if you teach people they're just an animal, why would we be surprised a generation later people act like animals? You see, the reality of the word of God is that, is that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, designed by God. You are a masterpiece of God. That you are not the label the world gives you. You see, the label wants to, I mean, the world wants to label us immediately because then you don't actually have to deal with people. You just deal with the labels. But the word of God says that you're not the label the world gives you, that only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. That, that you are created by God on purpose. You are not just a choice of somebody else. There are no accidental children. A lot of accidental parents, for sure. But there are no accidental children. That's why every single life matters. That you are not what you consume. You are not. The stuff of this world will not satisfy. And, oh my goodness, if we could undo one thing that Oprah did, do not follow your heart. That is the worst advice ever. Jesus said, it is the source of all wickedness. That is why I lovingly let you know the truth that you are a wretched, black-hearted sinner. Don't trust it. Even after it has been redeemed by Jesus, I wouldn't trust it because you're in the sanctification process, which means he's not finished with you yet. One day when you get to heaven, uh, John Piper defines heaven this way, that you wake up every day, not that you sleep in heaven, but you wake up every day, you do every, anything you wanna do and you don't regret it. That's a redeemed heart. Until then, <laughs> not so much. Do what the word says. So, so what does it look like to fasten the belt of truth on as, as defending your family? Man, for the sake of your children, please read them the Jesus Storybook Bible. If we just have to say that every week, because the reality is you'll learn stuff too. Just read the Jesus Storybook Bible. Identify the lies, the lies that your wife is buying into and claim the truth to her. Ephesians chapter five, husbands, we're told to love our wives and a part of the way that we love our wives as Christ loved the church is we wash her with the word of God. And the truth is not a proposition. The truth is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. John 14, six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You wanna know how to fasten the, the, the belt of truth on in your house? You point everybody and everything to Jesus. You point your wife and your family to Jesus. And you see, the belt for a Roman soldier was the centerpiece of everything. You take the belt off, everything falls apart. It's hard to fight with no pants on, okay? It just is. <laughs> Number one, you gotta fasten on the belt of truth. The second one is this, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is my favorite one. Because of this image we get of the imputed righteousness of Christ, that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made the righteousness of Christ. That God takes or transfers our sin nature to Jesus on the cross 
And he doesn't just carry our sin, he has made sin, and he transfers the perfect life of Jesus to us so that when Jesus was on the cross and the sky turned black and Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God saw Jesus as, the, as sin itself and pours out his wrath on him. And then to anybody that trusts Jesus as Savior, he sees us as his perfect son. So this breastplate of righteousness is the, is the most clear picture I've ever seen of it. Have you seen a breastplate from like the old school Roman movies and stuff? You ever, you ever notice they never make like a chubby guy breastplate? You know what I mean? No guy's ever getting fit and be like, this is, I need a little more here, a little less here. No, every single one, they're like perfect pecs and abs. And so when you put that thing on, I mean, come on, you've seen Gladiator, right? There's no chubby guys out there. They actually are, but you can't see through the breastplate to see the jiggle. When you look at this person, you just see perfect pe- So this is what the imputed righteousness is kind of like, all right? You put that thing on, and in God's vision, he just sees perfect, perfect, like CrossFit kind of perfect body. And then over time, not necessarily overnight, immediately God sees it that way. And then what's on the end, and you know there's a lot of jiggle going on in here, okay? Listen, man, I used to, I used to be ripped. Back in the day, not like 20 years ago, I'm serious, man, I was, I was boomed. Now my only fitness goal is don't be fat. Some weeks it slides into don't be too fat. Around the holidays, it's don't look fat in your clothes. Okay, that's where I'm at in my life. But when you put on the perfect breastplate, then God God just sees it perfectly. That's the imputed righteousness of Christ. And over time, not overnight, what's under there begins to conform to what's been placed on it. You see, the breastplate guarded the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, anytime the Bible says, this is most important, you might want to know this one. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So, are you guarding the heart of the people that God has put under your care? Do you celebrate who your kids are or what they have accomplished? See, that's a big difference, right? Good job on your report card. Good job hitting the ball. Good job, good job, good job. You know what that means? That it, you were ungospeling your children. Me too, man. Me too. Man, my kid, you know, he does, he's good grades and he plays sports. And I have, to, I have to gospel him with the imputed righteousness of Christ and brag on his identity and who he's becoming in Christ, not the things that he has done. I dare, watch yourself, watch yourself and how often what you do is you say, no, 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 this relationship is a works-based righteousness. For you to have a right standing before me, you better behave. That is, that is not fighting for your family. The enemy has taken some serious ground if, if your kids think, I tell you this, if your kids think they can disappoint you, then you don't know the gospel. Don't ever tell your kid that. Can you disappoint God? Not if the gospel's true. Not if Jesus is a propitiation for our sin. Propitiation means a payment that satisfies. And if he fully satisfies the payment, that means God cannot be dissatisfied in you. So if you were dissatisfied in your child, you were, un, you were giving them a picture of what the enemy would want them to believe. This is serious business. Do you see how the enemy, man, he's got schemes. He can get into a good Christian home and get your kids to believe if they don't make the grades, if they don't stay away from the bad stuff, if they don't perform for you, then you're not proud of them. 
And I'm telling you, you'll twist their idea of who God is in their life. The same thing is true with your wife. The same thing is true in your wife. Most women are identified by their looks, by their performance, and by what they do for others. Whether they're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or a stay-at-home mom, they are primarily judged by those three things. Are you pointing them to their identity in Jesus? You better protect your wife's heart. You better fight for her heart. That's why Adam got in trouble for listening to the voice of his wife because he was not listening to her heart. Are you listening to the heart of your wife and pointing her to the perfect righteousness that she has in Christ? And when she begins to spew lies out of her own mouth, a confession of real feelings based on lies from the enemy, are you helping her understand that is not who you are in Christ? I don't care what the front of the magazine looks like. Here's what, here's what Jesus says you are. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Or are you just helping her on that um, treadmill of performance? See, that's what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's to check on the hearts of your wife and your kids. Do you ask performance questions when you tuck your kids into bed? Or do you ask heart questions? I try every night after we do scripture and there's some prayers that we do the same every night. I try to ask some questions about the hearts of my children so that they can expose those places where they were hurt, where they were mad, where they were sad, where they were disappointed. Because that's a part of what it means to then point them to Jesus to let them know that his perfect righteousness covers all of their pain. Are you fighting for the hearts of your family? The next one is this. This one kind of freaks me out a little bit. You know it's bad when there are times I have to go back and listen to my own podcast so that I can do, like, do better at the sermon, ready? Verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Here's what this means. Do you bring peace or chaos to the circumstances you walk into? Because shoes take you somewhere. So when you walk into home, does it get more peaceful or make more chaotic? Things calm down or things escalate? See, to fight for your family is that you should be an ambassador of peace every time you walk into the presence of, of people that God has put in your life that you are responsible for. Do you? And when it says the gospel of peace, you see, by the gospel, by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have been put at peace with God, and now we are supposed to be ambassadors of peace because we have been reconciled with God, we should be reconciliators with one another, which means this, who do you need to go to for reconciliation in your family? Because listen, if you're the man, you go first. If you're waiting on your wife to apologize, then you don't get your job. You don't understand. You see, here's what reconciliation is about, confession and repentance. Those are the ingredients that lead to reconciliation which means this, men, we should be the chief repenters in our house. We should be the chief apologizers. And if you think, well, that's not my fault. What are you talking about? We're talking about the gospel. When Jesus was on the cross, whose fault was that? What if Jesus would have used the line we use? What if he would have loved his bride the way we love our bride? Yeah, as soon as you get your act together, then I'll do something for you. Guess what? We'd all be dead and going to hell. <laughs> but, but he had no sin. And he made our sin problem a bigger deal than his own righteousness. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, 
I'm gonna take full responsibility for this and it ain't even my fault. And he went to the cross. He said, Father, I'm sorry. And it was not his fault. He is the chief reconciler. And if you're like, man, this sounds hard. Yeah, you're a man. I thought you wanted to lead. Then be the lead apologizer in your house. And I tell you the best thing to do, if she'll be honest, she probably will. Ask your wife, when I walk into the place, when I walk into the house, do do I bring peace or chaos? And then you know what, regardless of what she says, you know what you say back to her? That's it. Verse 16. Verse 16. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, not fear. Men, I get it. I know you are afraid. Do you know how I know you're afraid? Me too. Me too. I I don't want to be a letdown. I don't want to be a disappointment. I don't want to be let down to my family. I don't want to be a let down to my wife. I don't want to be a let down to you. I think I've told you this before. One of the great things about pastoring this church is I get access to some of the best pastors in the country. So there's a guy, a good friend of mine named Matt Chandler. He's a pastor in Texas. He's, he's awesome, great guy. And so we'll talk on the phone and he pastors a church that's a little bigger than ours and been around longer than ours. And so I can ask him questions, legit pastor questions and there's not a whole lot of people in my world right now okay and he says what's your biggest fear and I'm like man I'm just I'm just afraid I'll let God down and he goes bro you're not holding him up (laughs) thanks Matt I appreciate that awesome (laughs) thought you'd pray for me or something (laughs) so the reality is this listen The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is fear because fear paralyzes and faith moves to action. To take up the shield of faith means that you take action in your family. (laughs) He promises the fiery darts are coming. The fiery darts are coming. And so what you do in, in the first century, Roman soldiers, their shields were made to hook together so that as one unit, as one big, you've seen 300, you were supposed to take ground behind the shield of faith knowing that every time you took a step, you got closer to the enemy, they could shoot at you more. And if you did this thing on your own, guess what? He would kill you because you were exposed on all sides. Listen here, men, you need a band of brothers around you that you can be honest with. You need some friends that you can call up and say, look, here's my number one fear. And here's what they say, okay, you can't take this too far. It'll get a little heretical. And sometimes what you gotta do is sort of draft off your brother's faith a little bit when your shield's getting a little banged up. You gotta have some brother that wraps his arms around you, be like, come on, man, I got you, I got your family, we're gonna do this. I actually think our church saw a little bit of this during the hurricane. We had families checking on each other, how you doing? What do you need? I got some of this, you got some of that, let's get together and we're gonna endure this thing together. And so, you take, in all circumstances, you take up a shield of faith. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. So I'd ask yourself the question, does your family know salvation? Part of the reason I think he says it's the helmet of salvation is because you can't lose your salvation. Like you can't lose your head. You can, but then you're done, okay? It's over. You can get different arms. You can even get a different heart. You can get somebody else's liver. It's just your head. And so does your family know the gospel? And then, you know, a major part of the head are the eyes. And are you casting an eternal vision for your family? 
Or are you just so concerned about what's going on right here, you've never cast an eternal vision for your family? Because this is just true. I know this stings a little because I read your email. So let me just say this again. I really believe that many of us in every room that we'll meet in this weekend are more concerned about where our kids are gonna go to college than where they're gonna spend eternity. Now, I know you're not in your heart, but with your calendar and your checkbook, you are. Have you given your kids an eternal vision? Because let me tell you somebody you don't wanna fight. You don't wanna fight a brother that has an eternal vision. Philippians chapter one, the apostle Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Fight that guy. You don't wanna fight a guy that enjoys a couple of punches first, right? You don't wanna play chicken with a dude that rips off the steering wheel, throws it out the window and goes, ah, come on, been waiting on this a long time. You're like, all right, you got me. All right, it's over. That's what our brother was saying here. He's walking into a new tribe. If you're gonna kill somebody, kill me first. How do you fight that guy? Right? Yeah, man. You wanna be, be dangerous for the kingdom of God? You have that kind of eternal sort of vision for you and your family. He says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I, I, I cannot communicate this enough. That dads, men, it is your job to teach the word of God to your entire family. And you cannot teach what you do not know. And, and when, Jesus, when Jesus was attacked by the enemy, he replied the same way, it is written, it is written, it is written. You have to have some it is written's in your life. Pa- Pastor Britt said this, I can't remember when, but this is brilliant. In regards to eternity, maybe the most important words in the Bible is this, it is finished. In our day-to-day life, maybe the most important words in the Bible are this, it is written. You better have some it is written's in your life. And man, don't you tell me, well, pastor, I can't memorize stuff. That is, that's just a lie. You remember what's important to you. I'm telling you, man, you're riding down the road, you hadn't heard wham since 86 and you could sing every word of it. If you don't know who Wham is, it was a gospel quartet that used to travel the Southeast. I didn't even like them then. I know every word. It's crazy. I mean, a part of our job is to plant the word of God. It is living. It is active. It can do things in your life that you just, you can't do. Listen, we were on the men's retreat encounter where we go hunting. And let me just be clear about this. I gave no gospel presentation. I gave no salvation invitation. I never have on the men's retreat. All we do is put dudes in a deer stand for four hours with a Bible. I say, read this, answer this question. And every year brothers get saved. Explain that to me. If this is not a supernatural inspired document from our almighty God. And again, the reason it has authority is not just because it has true statement, but it is trustworthy. We need to plant the word of God so deeply into the lives of the people that we love, which means this, every night when I tuck my little girl into bed, we pray out loud, Psalm 139, 14. Dear God, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well because my little seven-year-old, one day will be a 17-year-old. 
And the world does not want her to believe that. And when some little idiot around here comes sniffing around my house, <laughs> I'm telling you, it's true. I mean, you laugh. It is absolutely true. All right. I'm going to tell him. I don't mind going back to prison. Okay. <laughs> but my real hope is that, that I won't need that. She will have that, that protection. But the real hope is she doesn't, she doesn't need that because she understands that she is fearfully and wonderfully made and that his works are wonderful, which means she is wonderful and that she has been praying her entire life that she would know that full well. That's why I say I don't care about your feelings because our feelings are not our Lord. We have all kinds of feelings, okay? But man, we stand on the solid rock of the word of God. Man, when I took JP into bed, we've been praying Psalm chapter one for 10 years. Got to be a little season in JP's life in baseball. He's playing all-star baseball. I'm telling you, you know, our kids are all awesome. We start traveling around a little bit, get over to Fort Carolina. They're like 19 years old on steroids, driving up in Trans Ams, all right? They're kind of big. <laughs> JP memorizes Joshua 1 9. Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be afraid. He personalizes it. For the Lord, my God, is with me. Gets up to bat one day. Big old kid. I'm telling you, six foot three, beard, right? <laughs> Throwing heat. And I can see my son just mouthing something. Okay, luckily it stuck his bat off, it hit. The guy was throwing 600 miles an hour, so it went to the fence. It's great. Gets back around. Woo! I said, what were you doing, buddy? What were you saying? Were you saying a prayer? He said, no, I was saying my verse. Saying my verse. Now, just because you memorize a verse doesn't mean you hit it good. That's basically genetics, all right, that I gave him. But <laughs> you plant the word of God in your kids. Next, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Men, who are you praying for? Are you praying for and with your people? It is one of the primary ways that you can fight for your wife's heart is say, let me pray for you. And I mean, go to war for her in prayer. And don't pray for you in your prayers for her. You know, dear God, please help her calm down. That is not what I'm talking about. Pray for her. Pray out loud for her. And I know what you say. I ain't good at praying. Well, get good at it. I mean, seriously, man up. If you came to your boss, you'd be like, well, you know what, these reports, I'm not good at these reports. you get fired. Some of you need to be fired as a husband because you don't pray for your people. And the stakes here are infinitely higher than whatever that thing is that you're trying to sell. So figure it out. Re pray the Lord's prayer over her. Seek out, get in a disciple group and say, at the end, prayer request, I need to know how to pray for my family. They will help you. We will help you. The easiest way is just ask, how can I pray for you? Repeat that. That works. Pray. Pray out loud over and pray for. It's one of the primary, primary ways you can fight. And he says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Purpose, perseverance is a biblical value. It is not a current value in our culture. I mean, people change majors 19 times in their first semester, okay? To do something for a long time, our whole society doesn't know what that means right now. But in the Bible, there is a blessing in perseverance. Here's what this means. Just because you hear this sermon today doesn't mean you're gonna go back to your family and it's just all gonna get better all of a sudden. He is not a genie in a bottle. 
He is a sovereign God. And often, according to the book of James, he wants to drag you through the pain so that he can mature you into the man that he wants you to be. And so you persevere in that, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that's Paul, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So men, fight, fight, fight with the weapons of war that the almighty God has given us for the people that God has placed in your life that you are the gatekeeper and it is your job to keep out the enemy from your house. You see, I've told you this before. One of the happiest days of my life was I found out I was having a boy first, okay? It was just good, it was great. Called my daddy on the phone, I said, daddy, I made a boy. He said, I knew you had it in you, son, all right? (laughs) JP, Joseph Perry Martin IV. We're really into us, all right? I'm the third, I was almost junior, junior. That happens where I'm from sometimes, you gotta watch out. (laughs) <clears throat> and then the most terrifying moment is when we found out we were having a girl. I, mean, every, I think everybody needs a girl, all right? It would just change you, I mean, like crazy. And uh, Gretchen looked at me and says, you okay? I will be, all right? We got to get ready. And so we tell JP, if you ask him, what's your number one job? He would say, protect Reagan. Wherever we go, they go to the same school, he's a little patrol, and I tell him, listen, if some little boy goofs around with her, you take a book to his head, and they're going to kick you out of school. They're going to kick you out of school, and guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take you to Disney World. That's how that works. You want to earn a trip to Disney World? Take out a bully, all right? Whatever. I'm not even kidding, all right? Man, you know what your number one job is? to protect whoever it is that God has put under your authority. That's it, to protect them, to provide and to protect them. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says, my prayer is that when I die, all of hell rejoiced that I am out of the fight. Could you say that about you? My prayer, I've adopted C.S. Lewis's prayer. He's dead, he's out of the fight. I wanna take his spot. My prayer is that when I die, hell throws a party because they know they don't have to put up with me anymore. Not because of me, but because of his mighty strength. So here's the point. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. That's Exodus 15, three. So God created man in his own image. That's Genesis 1:27. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That's Ephesians six that we just studied. You put all together and here's what I say. To stand up and act like a man, we must dress ourselves for battle and go to war to defend and protect our loved ones. Stand firm because our victory is in Jesus. Now here's the thing. Some of you are like, oh, I don't know if I can do it. You can't. That's the reality is you can't. It's not just try harder, but you have to do this in God's strength and not your own. But the reality is, is that God always confirms what he calls, that he has equipped you, he has appointed you, and he has anointed you. And his divine power has given you everything you need to accomplish everything that he has called you to do. And if you're like, yeah, pastor, you don't know my story, well, you don't know mine either. But look through the stories of the Bible. Look, Jacob was a cheater. Peter had a temper, David had an affair, Noah got drunk, Jonah ran from God, Paul was a terrorist, Gideon was insecure, 
Thomas was a doubter. Elijah was moody. Jeremiah was depressed. Moses stuttered. Zacchaeus was short. Abraham was old. Lazarus was dead. And Samson had long hair. So there was a lot of problems in the Bible. And yet, God gave these men what they did not have in and of themselves. Because he is a good dad and he is a savior. And in Colossians chapter 2, here's what it says. It says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In other words, when the enemy comes against you and says, this is why you can't do it. This is why you can't stand firm in the faith. It says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That Jesus takes all of those whispers that the enemy tries to put into your ear and he nails them to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Did you hear that? He disarmed, past tense, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame. Men, you do not fight alone. You should have your brothers beside you, your brothers beside you, and the power of the Holy Spirit in you to stand up and to act like men and the lives of the people that he has put under our care depend on it. This matters, this matters. So every single day when you lift your head up off that pillow, then you put on the whole armor of God I would challenge you, man, one of the ways you could do it is this very week, every single day. You just read Ephesians chapter six every single day until you don't have to go back and read it anymore. And you just understand that I've got to put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And I've got to fit my feet in the, in the shoes of the gospel of peace. And I've got to make sure I've got on my helmet of salvation and take up my shield of faith and my sword, which is the word of God. And you go to war. And you go to war for truth and you go to war in prayer and you, you and I quit fighting with the people that God has put in our lives to love and we fight with the enemy so that we can by, be fighting on their behalf. And men of 1122, when we start to do this, when we lead and love well, everybody, everybody, Everybody in Jacksonville, everybody in our homes, even people in Africa will begin to flourish. Amen? Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious heavenly Father, God, we love you because you loved us first and you went first because you are first. And God, I'll go first and admit that I, I get scared. I get scared of what you've called us to do. I, oftentimes I'm lazy instead of getting dressed for battle. God, I take my eyes off of the eternal vision that you have for us and I just get worried about my own comforts or my own bruised ego. And Lord, I confess and I repent when I have shirked the responsibility of being the man that you have called me to be. And God, I thank you that it is not up to me and my strength, but I can trust in the perfect God man who went before me and died on the cross and the spirit of your son lives in me. It's the same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the grave and that overcame sin and death. And because you did it 2000 years ago, God, you could do it every single day in my life. God, it is my prayer 
that by the power of your mighty hand that I would fight so hard that this movement would be a movement of men fighting so hard that on the day that we die, that hell would rejoice because we are no longer in the fight. And our homes and our church and our city and our entire world would look different because we stood up and act like men. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Men, we should also be the lead prayers in our family. I'm just going to shoot you straight. When we, at the end of every service, right, we sing, we bring, and we pray. That's what we do. We respond to the gospel. That's what worship is. This is a response to God for who he is and what he's done. Often the altars are full of women, usually praying for their men. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you. How about tonight, men, we lead the way in prayer. How about you get over yourself and you come down here and you bend your knee to the one that stretched his arms out for you and you cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And maybe tonight you would go to war on behalf of your friends and family and loved ones and coworkers and children and it would start tonight at this altar. Let us respond.